thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Boldly going where no science show has gone before. The Naked Scientists. Hello and welcome to this week's Naked Scientists with me, Helen Scales, and with Ben Valsler. Hello, Ben. Hello. Now, this week we're looking at the science of laughter and music, finding out how science and scientists have inspired stand-up comedy and music festivals, and finding out what's going on inside our brains that makes laughter just so addictive. Thank you, Helen. We will be talking to writer and comedian Robin Ince about how geneticists and astronomers feature in his latest tour. We'll be finding out what sort of music you can expect at the world's first online science music festival, that's called Geek Pop, and we'll be talking to award-winning comedian Catherine Ryan about how she felt about being genetically profiled. There are different genes that can test, different markers that might say you'd uh, have a higher probability of getting cancer than someone else. And it was just something that I'd love to do to see what else is in there. Plus, we'll follow the footprints of man's evolution to bipedal walking. We'll find out how Jupiter and Saturn acted as celestial bulldozers to clear away parts of the asteroid belt. And we'll discover how a cheeky octopus left an aquarium knee-deep in water. And in Kitchen Science, Dave is sticking with the theme of musical science in a way that only he can. He'll be building a tabletop guitar. That's all on the way this week on The Naked Scientists. So if you want to get in touch with any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is chris at thenakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientist podcast, powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider. On the web at ukfast.net. Now, there are asteroids missing from the belt between Jupiter and Mars, and researchers now think that they were shoved out of place by two of our solar system's gas giants, Jupiter and Saturn, as they assumed their current orbit some four billion years ago. Writing in the journal Nature, David Minton and Renu Malhotra from the University of Arizona identified gaps in the asteroid belt where there should be an even distribution of asteroids. There are some gaps existing, they're called Kirkwood gaps, and they are there because the gravitational influence of the planets makes certain regions in the belt actually quite unstable. Now, they were originally identified by Daniel Kirkwood in 1857, but some of them have actually remained a mystery until now. Minton and Malhotra designed a computer model of the asteroid belt, which took into account all of the existing gravitational influence that we know about, but their model actually started out with a uniform distribution of asteroids. So they ran their model to simulate 4 billion years and found that the Kirkwood gaps in their model matched very well to the ones that we observe in real life. But actually, in the real asteroid belt, there were several regions where there were very few asteroids, but the normal gravitational influence couldn't account for them being missing. There's already some evidence, the orbits of Pluto and Neptune, for example, that the planets in our solar system have not always been in the same sorts of orbits we find them in now. And so factoring this into account and winding the clock back in their model, the observed gaps actually fit very well with the course that Jupiter and Saturn would have taken migrating to their present positions. 
The researchers estimate that actually, in the course of finding their place in our solar system, Jupiter and Saturn may have caused the asteroid belt to have lost almost 95% of its original pre-migration asteroids. So actually, the missing pieces of our asteroid belt can help us to fill in some of the missing pieces of the story, the history of our solar system. It's quite incredible to think how we can wind back time all that way and figure out what was going on a long way back in time. But I'm going to wind the clock forward just a little bit further to about 1.5 million years ago, not uh, 4 billion years ago. And uh, as the Bee Gees sang in their 70s hit, Staying Alive, there's a lot you can tell from the way someone uses their walk. And now it seems that our ancestors may have been walking like us for at least a million and a half years. Now that's according to a study published this week in the journal Science by a team led by Matthew Bennett from Bournemouth. University here in the UK and they've uncovered two sets of fossilised footsteps thought to have been left behind by Homo erectus strolling through deposits of volcanic ash near Lake Turkana in northern Kenya between 1.53 and 1.51 million years ago. Now walking on two feet is a key human adaptation that first evolved we think around 8 million years ago but until now there's not been enough evidence for when the modern human gait first evolved and apparently there aren't many feet in the fossil records this is something new I've learnt apparently because predators and scavengers like to eat feet and hands, so there aren't many of them around to find. Well, the the oldest known footprints at the moment from the human lineage are from Australopithecus afarensis 3.7 million years ago, but those footprints from Tanzania revealed that our ancestors at that stage were still walking around with a more ape-like gait, with a splayed big toe and a foot generally suited for grasping onto things rather than for walking along the ground. Now, these newly discovered tracks in Kenya have um, the shape much more like what you would see um, that you've left behind as you're walking along a beach today. And as we walk, we put first our heel down, which makes a big impression in the sand or whatever you're walking on, if it's soft. Um, And then as you move forward, you move the weight onto the ball of your foot, again making a deep impression. And then we propel ourselves forward on our toes. And most importantly, our big toe is in line with the rest of our feet. So again, it's incredible to think that just a few individual Homo erectus left their footprints in the mud a long, long time ago, a million and a half years ago and now their descendants have found those tracks they've turned them those tracks that have turned into stone and we're using them to help unpick one of the great mysteries of human evolution it's incredible to think as well because you need such precise conditions for any fossil to form so something as delicate and fragile as a footprint the fact that we've got them at all is in itself well really a miracle it's wonderful yeah Well, also this week has seen the first birthday of a global seed bank that's based in Svalbard. Um, Rather than receiving a cake, though, they actually received a four-ton shipment of seeds from all over the world, which brings the total number of seeds that they have up to 20 million seeds. Now, this place is described as the the custodians of the crown jewels of crop diversity, which is actually quite a mouthful to say. But seed banks like this one are essential not only as an archive of wild species and species that we've cultivated to keep them safe from what might happen in the wild, but they're also really good as an enormous genetic database that may enable us to grow more food crops and cope with changing climate. Now, there have already been some really not pleasant predictions that the changing climate could reduce maize production in southern Africa by up to 30% in just the next 20 years, which shows that we really need to maintain as diverse a range of crops as possible in order to adapt our agriculture to the climate. Without these stored seeds and the genetic secrets that they contain, we would actually struggle to maintain even the current level of food production, and this is bearing in mind that the population is going up all the time. 
Seeds arriving at the vault to celebrate its anniversary included 32 different varieties of potatoes, which is remarkable. I didn't even know there were that many varieties of potato. Go and try some. <laughs> as well as oats, wheat, barley, various wild grasses. And they're all travelling in from places like Canada, Ireland, Switzerland, the USA, Syria, Mexico, Colombia, although the seeds themselves are actually from all over the world. The Svalbard vault itself is an incredible feat of engineering, consisting of chambers carved 120 metres into the side of a mountain. That's how much they want to keep these seeds safe. And it actually has a capacity to store 4.5 million different types of seeds. It's part of a global network, and they each duplicate the seeds that the others hold as a backup. So in the event of a global catastrophe, any one of them should be able to act as a Noah's Ark for agriculture. That is quite incredible. Is there any particular reason why it's in Svalbard? Is it because it's cold there and they've got a mountain that they can dig a big hole into? <laughs> Basically, yes. It, the conditions are right there. They know that it's high, high up enough that when the ice melts it won't flood they know that something like inside the side of a mountain is a very good place to keep it and it does need to be refrigerated so the fact that it's in deep permafrost is very helpful because it means you spend less energy keeping it cool sounds great well i'm going to finish off this week with another wonderful story from the oceans and uh, it isn't quite the great escape this story but aquarium keepers at santa monica pier aquarium in the united states were left knee deep in water this week when a cheeky octopus tried to make a break for freedom well this female two-spotted octopus which is about 30 centimeters long swam up to the top of her tank and using her dexterous tentacles unscrewed the water valve on her tank releasing at least 200 gallons of seawater that gushed out into the aquarium causing havoc. And the wily escapologist survived this ordeal but didn't actually quite manage to break out of her tank. She was still there when they found her in the morning. Well, octopuses are well known for their curiosity, nimble tentacles and their immense strength. And biologists are still not quite sure exactly how intelligent octopuses are and we don't know for sure really if this octopus definitely knew what she was doing when she was fiddling with this tank tap knowing that uh, this water would come out. But certainly it does seem that they are some of the brainiest invertebrates that there are. And um, octopus can do things like learn how to open jars full of food and they leap sometimes into neighbouring aquariums looking around for food, which I think is a rather sweet idea. (laughs) Um, And I think perhaps, in my personal opinion, the most brilliant animal in the world is something called the mimic octopus, which lives in Indonesia and it spends its life doing amazing impersonations of lots of different other sea animals, including sea snakes and flatfish and lionfish. It really is, it's got, I mean, that kind of behaviour has got to be backed up by some level of amazing intelligence, I'm sure. And I'd love to see one. So if anyone wants to take me to see one, I'd be very happy. Um, An octopus apparently might have a sense of humour. There's a story of an octopus that uh, when it was given a slightly off shrimp to eat, it stuffed it in a drain while keeping eye contact with the aquarium keeper as if to say, I'm not eating that. So there you go, the wonderful world of octopuses. And I bet this one had at least a bit of a giggle watching its keepers mopping up after it. Now, also in the news this week, Australian researchers have published a paper in the journal Nature confirming that fish were having sex over 380 million years ago. That's 30 million years earlier than we've ever known about before. Over in Australia, our friend Nikki Phillips from the ABC Radio National Science Show met up with John Long, who's Head of Sciences at Museum Victoria. Geologist John Long and his team have discovered how ancient vertebrates have sex and even how their penis functioned. This research, combined with earlier finds, suggests that vertebrates separated into males and females in primitive fish almost 400 million years ago. 
Scientists have known ancient fish had sex since their discovery of a primitive mother fish with a fossilised embryo inside it in the Gogo region of Western Australia last year. The mother fish, a species called Tyctodon, is from a group of extinct fish called Placoderms. Since then, scientists have pieced together fossil records of another species of Placoderms called Arthrodies and revealed they too contained embryos. These fossilised embryos are the oldest records of live birth invertebrates. And because live birth can't occur without sex, scientists knew that primitive fish were doing the deed, but how some of them were doing it has remained a mystery until now. John Long from Museum Victoria. Now looking at more of this amazing fossil fish material from the Gogo sites in Western Australia, we found that the biggest group of these armoured fish, the placoderms, the biggest group, the arthrodires, also have embryos inside them and they were also fertilising by males copulating with the females. But this is something that we would not have expected because when you look at the group that the mother fish belongs to, the tyctodonts, they actually show sexual dimorphism. The males have claspers and the females don't and claspers are what we see in sharks and rays today, that, that's how they, they copulate. The arthrodires, on the other hand, their pelvic fins up until now have been always depicted as very simple structures, just like uh, simple fins. So it made us go right back and look again and look hard at these fossils to see if anything had been overlooked. And then we found it. It was another fantastic eureka moment when you make a big discovery that for 100 years has been completely overlooked. We found that these pelvic fins in these arthrodires had an extra articulation. And that articulation meant that they had a long lobe attached to the fin that was directed behind the fish in a rearward direction and that it looks exactly like the claspers in modern sharks. So we found out not only that this major group were having internal fertilisation but we found out how they were doing it and we believe this shows the origin of the beginnings of sexual dimorphism in vertebrates. So structures found on fossilised fish can tell us a great deal about the evolution of sexual dimorphism, that's different characteristics for males and females, and the more we understand about these ancient animals, the better we understand our own evolutionary history. That was John Long from Museum Victoria talking to Nikki Phillips from The Science Show at ABC Radio National, and that paper is out in this week's Nature. Keeping you abreast of the world's best science, The Naked Scientists. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with me, Helen Scales, and with Ben Valslow. And there is also another way to listen to The Naked Scientists. And while you're at it, you can chat about the science in the show with like-minded folks. That's in the virtual world of Second Life. We're live at 10am Second Life time every Sunday. So if you want to join us, sign up for Second Life, visit the Silands, and search for The Naked Scientists. You can drop by our mansion, relax on one of the sun lounges, and listen to the show. As we're talking about how science can inspire musicians and comedians today, we thought this week's kitchen science should be musical as well. So Ben dusted off his guitar while Dave decided to build his own. Hello and welcome to a very musical kitchen science. Now what you just heard was an electric guitar, probably not an unfamiliar sound to many people, but it may be an unfamiliar sound to Dave Ansell, who actually doesn't listen to a lot of music. So Dave, what are we doing today? I have to admit, I'm not the most musical person in the world, but I would have a try and look at some of the science in stringed instruments. So we thought we'd try and build one. 
So we're going to build ourselves something akin to a guitar. Yeah, pretty much. Basically a two-string guitar, so fairly simple. The tunes you're going to be able to play on it are probably fairly limited, but we'll see what we can do. I have a guitar. I know just about how to play the guitar. I'm not very good, but I think I know how it works. How are we actually going to construct this? What will we do? Well, probably the easiest way to do this, which I've worked out, is if you just get a piece of string, the important thing in a stringed instrument is obviously a piece of string, and a table, because that's a nice big object to lay out your guitar on. I've tied the piece of string to one end of the table, just to the foot underneath. And then we're going to need a couple of blocks to mark the two ends of the string. So I've just knocked up something out of the garage, basically two solid lumps of wood, which are going to hold the string at a point. And then we need something to give the string some tension. On your guitar, you use your tuning pegs at one end, but we want a more scientific, more accurate way of doing this. So we're going to apply weight to one end. I'm using a bottle, so we can add water, any amount of water, and we can change the weight. So we have a variable tension thing on the end. Now, I use the tuning pegs, as their name suggests, to tune it and get the right note. So we're changing the tension to change the note in the string. Is that right? That should have that effect, yes. So far, this looks pretty straightforward. If we're not going the whole hog and making a six-string guitar, or at least a four-string bass, why are we even bothering with the second string? Well, once we've worked out how a guitar works and what we can do to change the notes, I thought we'd try and have a look at harmony and see what you have to do scientifically to make two notes which sound nice together. In order for my guitar to sound nice, for me to get harmonies, I have to tune it very carefully. How are you going to ensure that your second string is actually in tune? Well, I'm not going to just sit there and tune it for ages and just try and get it to work. I'm going to try and use maths and try and get it right first time. So we're going to build a two-stringed instrument now, and in part two, not only will we explain how a string actually works to make such a nice sound, but also we'll put Dave's theory and maths to the test and see if he can build two strings that together make beautiful music rather than an awful noise. We'll be back later in the show. Will Dave be able to build a stringed instrument that actually sounds good using theory alone? Stay tuned to find out. Laying the facts bare. I say. The Naked Scientists. This is The Naked Scientists, and this week we're looking at how science influences art. Still to come, we'll hear about Geek Pop, the world's first online music festival featuring lots of music that's inspired by science and scientists. We'll also find out why laughter is contagious. But first, when you think of stand-up comedy, scientists may not be the first thing that comes to mind. Science, though, has inspired comedian Robin Ince, who you may have seen or heard touring with Ricky Gervais or through one of his regular appearances on television or BBC Radio. He's currently on a nationwide tour with a show called Bleeding Heart Liberal, which draws heavily from his love of science. I caught up with him to find out how scientists can play a role in modern comedy. Well, Bleeding Heart Liberal was originally going to be a more political show than it is, but it it started to edge more and more into things about Carl Sagan and Voyager and what was put on the golden record, uh, as it's known, that went went through space with the information for whatever lucky extraterrestrial would find out about us. Um, There's some poo jokes in it. (laughs) Um, And when there's not poo jokes, then it's probably me either talking about my favourite geneticists or astronomers. So um, I I think it is at the moment primarily a very enthusiastic show. I mean, that's really what I am. I'm halfway between being a self-loathing curmudgeon and, you know, an open university lecturer who's accidentally eaten some mushrooms he found under the bark of a tree. It seems quite a risk, actually, to talk about, as you said, your favourite geneticist. I'd imagine a lot of people don't even have a favourite geneticist. Well, I think part of, if there is a key to it, and I don't know if there is, is to, right from the start, lay out the fact that you are not 
smarter than the audience. I think that you can sometimes almost look kind of supercilious or superior, whereas I am playing it very much from the angle that uh, I'm, I'm not from a scientific background. I've got increasingly into science, and I try and make it as silly as possible. So that part of the humour is, is perhaps the ridiculousness of a man jumping up and down uh, doing nursery rhymes that were supposedly invented by Gregor Mendel. <laughs> so uh, I take it from that that Mendel's your favourite geneticist? Do you know what? I, I'm not. It was so troublesome. You know, you know the way that James Watson just suddenly fell out of the chart last year, you know, whether <laughs> it was justified or not. Um, I, I just find it. I'm always fascinated by um, intellectual monks, whether they're you know inventing tonic wines, whether they're noticing moments where the, the moon has been struck by a small asteroid, or whether they're counting wrinkled and smooth peas. Of course. Well, that's the, the Mendel story. And you said you also mentioned your favourite astronomer. Now, of course, they're in the news a lot at the moment because it's the International Year of Astronomy. Mm. So who would be your pick for that? In truth, what I, what I often do is I have a pretend top three in which I never reveal two of them, which allows me, therefore, to constantly change my list without anyone realising year by year. Ultimately, it is it probably Carl Sagan, just because Carl Sagan's my favourite scientist. I know that many people would say that his actual level of scientific achievement in in terms of discovering a new theory or whatever it may be is not great but his zeal his passion the fact that he turns so many people onto science you know watching cosmos reading his books which combined yeah magnificent poetry with, with with hard facts and i find that i'm quite obsessed by him and Eratosthenes. I've been trying for five years to write a routine about Eratosthenes, the man who uh, first got an approximate idea of what the circumference of the Earth was through shadows, sticks and wells. I still haven't found it. Maybe when I come to Cambridge or Norwich, I shall attempt another making Eratosthenes funny routine. So obviously science inspires you. How are your audiences responding? Every now and again, there are some people who are a little bit confused. I was doing a gig in Bromsgrove, and as I was just sitting, sweating outside the stage door at the end of the gig, I just heard a couple go past going, well, to me, quite honest, I didn't understand quite a lot of that. So it's a starting point, hopefully. that I, I mean, what's, what I found is lovely is finding out that people have gone out and bought books by Richard Feynman and books by Carl Sagan and other science books off the back of seeing the tour and seeing me play music festivals. I also think that people are much smarter than we imagine. For instance, when I played Reading and Leeds last year, the Leeds Music Festival, they said afterwards, you know, if I was you, I might dumb down for Reading. And I found that at Reading, I, you know, you can play to 3,000 reasonably drunk teenagers and they will get what you're talking about. If you approach something passionately, and hopefully there are some jokes in there as well, they don't immediately switch off because it's not just about drinking and shagging and the things which TV generally seems to believe is the only thing that an audience can uh, handle. This year is also an anniversary of 200 years since Charles Darwin was born and 150 years since The Origin of the Species was published. How does Darwin fit in with your show? I think the first time that I became truly fascinated was reading an essay by Jacob Bronowski where he talked about if you drove past down on a certain day in a certain year, you would have seen a young man playing a bassoon to a flower. Uh, and it was Darwin making his son, one of his sons, play the bassoon to see how uh, bassoon playing and music affected flowers. And I thought, now this is an interesting man. Obviously, I also was a reasonably big fan of the theory of evolution. It seemed like a pretty good theory to come up with. And so the show does end on uh, about 15, sometimes 20 minutes about Charles Darwin, about having you know, 20 years locked in your head, having this amazing uh, theory. And uh, then I can't resist a little bit about the woolly-headed nature of uh, creationism. Do you feel there is actually a movement towards 
more science-inspired comedy. Several of your peers, uh, Ricky Gervais is obviously very pro-science. Not a lot of it actually makes it into his stand-up routines. But... No, I don't believe any of it will make it into even his new show, which is entitled Science. Um, <laughs> well, in fact, there is a huge, an accidental rational movement, basically. And I think after um, we put together the show Nine Lessons and Carols for Godless People, where we on the science side, you had Simon Singh and Ben Goldacre and Richard Dawkins. They're various uh, musicians, people like Jarvis Cocker and Darren Heyman, and then comedians, and all of them were doing something on the rational world. And you have people like Dara Brin, Chris Addison, Stuart Lee, and Josie Long, and all of, of them are approaching things from a rational perspective, and, and especially Dara, who has a physics background. He's very excited about talking about science, and I think there is... Perhaps, I don't know, but perhaps because TV isn't really pandering very much to intellectual programming. I hate the intellectual programming. That's a terrible thing. Do you know what? Knowledge, learning, anything like that. So I think there has been an accidental, rational stroke scientific movement start in comedy. That was Robin Ince explaining how scientists have inspired his current stand-up tour and how many of his colleagues are shifting towards scientific viewpoint. He's on tour across the UK with Bleeding Heart Liberal, so go to www.robinince.com to find out if there's a gig that you can go to near you. Lifting the lab coats on the world's best science. The Naked Scientists. This is The Naked Scientist with Ben Valsler and me, Helen Scales. Now, regardless of your own sense of humour, have you ever noticed how watching someone else laugh almost always brings a smile to your face? Well, Professor Sophie Scott from University College London has looked into finding out what's going on in our brains when we see other people laugh. Hello, Sophie. Hello. Thanks for joining us on the show today. Well, thanks very much for asking me. So, what's going on inside our brains when we hear other people laughing? What happens when you hear people making any kind of emotional sound? So if you hear somebody screaming or somebody going, um, as well as laughing, what we find is that the part of your brain which you would use to sort of process heard sounds, that's activated. But also we find the parts of the brain that you would actually activate to yourself produce facial movements and noises is also activated. So it seems that part of what you're doing when you hear people express emotions in their voices is start to join in a little bit with the, the type of emotion they're expressing. But interestingly, we're finding the effect is much, much greater for laughter than it is for sort of a highly contagious emotion like disgust. Nonetheless, the laughter effect is much, much bigger. So it seems that um, when you hear somebody laughing, your brain is really strongly responding with an attempt to get you at least to start smiling, presumably. So so the bits in your brain that, that, that basically your brain's getting ready to smile, even if you're not actually at that point of smiling. Do we know that that's what's going on, really? That's, that's what we think's happening, because so people aren't moving, they're not smiling, they're not laughing, but they're just listening to the sounds, and they're told not to move, not to smile, not to do anything. Nonetheless... Even, uh, even though they've been told to sort of not really try and engage with these sounds at all, their brain is just gearing up much more when you hear the laughter. And we're interpreting that as, as the, sort of the precursor of people actually starting to smile. And how are we finding this out? How are you looking inside people's brains and, and finding out what, what's going on when, when, you hear, when they're hearing different uh, sounds of other people? We're using a technique called functional magnetic resonance imaging, which is a way of literally sort of taking photographs of activity inside people's brains when they're, for example, listening to different sounds or they're doing different things. Why do you think this might be? I mean, what are the ideas behind why, why should we find laughter so, so uh, we want to mimic it ourselves? Why is that, do you think? Um, it seems to be that, I mean, obviously different emotions have different functions, but laughter has a, seems to have a very important function as a group activity. 
people like to group to laugh with other people we laugh more when we're with other people it's and in fact if you look at groups of friends talking to each other they will try and make each other laugh all the time so it's actually something that we do as a as quite a strong social bond and in fact you'll find this in other primates we're not the only uh, species of monkey that laughs so there are chimpanzee groups that laugh and they do they're doing it in the same way they're doing it to reinforce bonding i wonder if we would start smiling if we hear chimpanzees laughing oh, you would do they sound very much like a human laugh <laughs> it's, 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 it sounds it's, you can hear that it's not, it's not human it's different but it's definitely a laugh and babies make kind of laughing sounds too don't they do we know that that's a similar sort of reason why why sort of gurgling happy sounds come out of us when we're still very tiny. I think that's a very good point. It does seem to be it's one of the first kind of um, behaviours that really emerges when, you know, children can cry from the minute they're born, but babies start to smile and laugh around six weeks. And that seems to be a really important uh, function, again, for really establishing close bonds with their caregivers. So parents are always absolutely thrilled when their baby starts smiling and laughing back at them, and then they'll really go some miles to try and get the babies <laughs> to laugh. It's, it's got this really strong, positive bonding quality. And presumably, we do feel good when we laugh, don't we? Is that part of it as well? That's a sort of the other hormones that are making us feel happy when we laugh. Absolutely, and I'm supremely unqualified to talk about them, but I, I'm sort of <laughs> talking about the, the activity side of the brain, sure. and I'm not really addressing this, no. um, the, the chemical changes, but undoubtedly they are. They're going to be all these nice, feel-good hormones. It, it feels just great if you've sat and talked to good friends and had a good laugh it's a lovely feeling and that seems to be one of the things that's going to be reinforcing the quality of the interaction do we think that maybe we've been laughing longer than we've been talking is that right there are some people who've argued that um because you find laughter in other primate groups um and indeed some people have argued in other mammals some people argue that rats laugh that laughter would be one reason for us to get together and sort of have social bonds formed between us even before we could talk to each other. So it's something we could do before, it, as a group of people before we could even necessarily have words. I like the idea of, of wordless Stone Age jokes, just yeah. miming or something. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> Get everyone together. And, and of course, there are, there are different types of laughter, aren't there? And we, we, we think about laughter just being, being something to do with sort of a joke or something that's funny. But we laugh when we're nervous or perhaps mm. there's cruel laughter as well. Do you think that the brain's going to respond differently to different types of laughter? I think this is almost certainly going to be the case. I mean, I'm just looking at one type of laughter. We were taking quite genuine-sounding laughs that didn't have any particular quality to them, so there weren't any evil laughs or um, nervous laughs in there. And when you consider that, as you say, people actually laugh in lots of different ways. And if you ask people what makes them laugh, people will tell you different things. So in Germany, people will give you a different answer than people would hear. And that's sort of associated with different qualities of laughs that different cultures are better attuned to hearing. So I think there's undoubtedly a whole story within this of different kinds of laughter and different ways that we use it. And is it all about the sound of laughter or... If we look at someone else or see someone else laughing, is that going to give us a similar response in our brains, do we think? I think so. Um, I mean, you must have had the experience of sitting in a meeting and you can see in your peripheral vision that one of your colleagues has started giggling and they're not making any noise yet, but they're just shaking in that way that you know they're laughing and it starts to have that effect on you. So I think um, it is bound not to be something that's only expressed through the auditory modality. And, uh, and you said that you also uh, play people nasty sounds, so yeah. um, uh, <laughs> screaming, is that a sort of wretched Screaming and <laughs> disgusted sounds and all sorts of horrible sounds. Do we, do we think there's something, you said, and there wasn't such a strong response, we, we're not pulling a face as much or, or preparing ourselves to pull yeah. a face when that happens. Is there, there... Was, there was a degree of an effect there, but it was a much less strong effect for the negative emotions we looked at. So it did seem that... Um, a little bit of understanding emotions made by other people seems to be that you engage these motor areas, these areas you'd use to make actions yourself, but they're much less strong than they are for these, these positive emotions um, like laughter. So 
it's it can't be something to do with the kind of contagion of the emotion itself because we know that disgust is really contagious. I mean, if you're with somebody who looks at a bowl of food and goes, you you're going to feel a little bit sick. You probably wouldn't want to eat that food yourself. It's very contagious, but it doesn't seem it doesn't seem that when they go that you necessarily have to start going as well. It's just enough to, to hear them. Yes, <laughs> I apologise for keeping doing that. <laughs> <laughs> All sounds good. And um, and where are you going to take this next? Are you sort of are you going to start um, uh, planning to, to look at more detail at, at what's going on inside our brains when when we're preparing to laugh and preparing to smile? Well, there's all sorts of things we're trying to do with this. So um, I, one of my colleagues who's been working on this, Dita Sota, has been off looking at laughter in other cultures. So she's been off working with people living in very unwesternized societies in the Namibian desert. And lo and behold, they actually laugh in exactly the same way. So it's, it is interesting to look at the, the really strong commonalities across groups. And it's also interesting to start looking at these things um, in terms of understanding normal and abnormal brain functions. So can we find some of these patterns of sort of these responses to very positive emotional noises are they are they reduced in any particular clinical groups so people who really aren't getting finding life very funny are they really showing suppressed responses that's fantastic thanks sophie that was uh, sophie scott from university college london and so next time you see someone else enjoying a joke you'll know that your brain is priming you to join in and laugh along with them now, so far we've heard how science can inspire comedy, but science and comedy can also meet off stage. Mira Senthalingam met up with Nivea Funny Woman Award winner Catherine Ryan, and she is a comedian. She volunteered herself to be genetically profiled. At the end of January, Channel 4 and the Wellcome Trust launched an eight-part online miniseries called Roots, which saw award-winning comedian Catherine Ryan send a sample of her saliva to a lab in a bid to help her understand what's hidden in her genes. For the Roots Project, I had to spit in a tube and send away my DNA to have a full genome profile done. Before you did it, how did you feel about having your DNA sequenced? Were you nervous? I was always open to the idea. Um, I'm not afraid of information. I think that it can only help you. I really was interested to know the results. You actually already knew a little bit about your genetics before you did this, didn't you? Yeah, I've had some bad news already, I guess. I had uh, melanoma two years ago that was a little bit advanced, so I had to have a few surgeries to get rid of that. And that's a particularly aggressive form of skin cancer. And there there are different genes they can test, different markers that might say you'd uh, have a higher probability of getting cancer than someone else. And it was just something that I'd love to do to see what else is in there and uh, I'm having a baby this year and I really wanted to see what I might be a carrier of. What did you find out? Well funny things I found out that I'm not resistant to malaria or the norovirus and I'm not resistant to AIDS which is weird I didn't know anybody was (laughs) resistant to AIDS. I learned that lupus is closely related to celiac disease which runs in my family they're both autoimmune disorders and I have a prostate cancer gene, but I don't have a prostate gland, so I'm okay. I don't have schizophrenia or Parkinson's or um, cystic fibrosis carrier traits. And so some good news and bad news all mixed in there. I mean, it's a huge profile that you get back. Some of the information was that my eyes are blue. I knew that. I'm very white. I think my ancestry comes from Ireland and nowhere else. It was, it was all just very interesting. They add research to it all the time, and it's really interesting. They compare your results with people with your same background, and it's just, there's always something new to learn. That was comedian Catherine Ryan discussing her experience of having her genome profiled.
But how is this profile actually done? And how relevant is the information that it provides us with? I met up with Steve Jones, Head of Genetics at University College London, to find out, starting with why spit is such a good sample to use. Well, it's not really spit, because spit is just a, an organic liquid, but more important, it's got cells floating in it. And cells, of course, are what your body's made out of, about trillions and trillions of cells. Uh, and that will contain enough cells for them to take off to the lab, take the DNA out of it, and do this magical sequencing. And so once a sample has been sent off, what actually happens to get a sequence of someone's DNA? Well, it's quite a complicated business. There's a whole variety of methods of actually doing it. One way is basically to take a set of molecular scissors which snip a particular point. They might cut a particular three-letter sequences and just snip all the way along the DNA into tiny little fragments, often overlapping with each other, look for the overlaps and then rebuild up the whole sequence. That's how you do a DNA sequence. Actually, I think what this young lady had done probably wasn't quite a sequence, it was looking at individual points in the DNA to see whether they varied uh, compared to the population as a whole. So what does looking at particular points or markers, I'm assuming, then um, in someone's DNA and comparing it to the population as a whole, what can that tell you about someone? In some ways, looking at a short length of DNA is a bit like looking at a surname. Um, If you look at a surname in the European system, it passes from fathers to sons to grandsons and so on. Any short length of DNA, as long as it's short enough, will travel down the generations as a block of letters. And by looking at that block of letters, you're really sorting out your identity in relation to the other people around you. They look at predetermined spots, points in the DNA, which they know varies from person to person, and which quite often we already know predispose to certain inherited conditions, perhaps in association with the environment. Once someone has their genome sequenced in this way, what is the result of this sequencing that they see? So what you can produce is what's sometimes called a haplotype, which is just a statement of what your identity at particular points in the DNA is. But if she's interested in health, of course, there are particular genes which predispose to certain diseases. Some are well-known diseases like um, cystic fibrosis, which you probably know already if she had, but some simply tell you that maybe, for example, um, in order to get lung cancer, you need to smoke and you need to have one rather common genetic variant. And there was once a hope that you could screen lots and lots of people and tell them, oh, I'm afraid you've got the gene that if you smoke, you will almost certainly get lung cancer. And the hope was that would stop them from smoking, but it doesn't. Now, many people worry about genome sequencing just because they are concerned about finding out what diseases or disorders they might get. But surely it's not just your genetics. Environment also plays an important role, doesn't it? There are occasional rare genetic diseases, things like cystic fibrosis, that if you've got them, really, obviously, it's the gene that makes a big, big difference and the environment doesn't make all that much difference. But there are many, many more, like, let's say, heart disease. If you have particular genes, it is particularly important for you to avoid a fatty diet, not to get overweight, not to smoke and that kind of stuff. And I don't deny this is true. This is certainly true. But that's true for everybody. Geneticist Steve Jones explaining how Catherine's sample would have been analysed to provide her with her profile of susceptibility and resistance to certain genetic disorders. To find out more about Catherine's experience or play the range of interactive games that Channel 4 have developed to explain the world of genetics, visit the Roots website at www.rootsgame.com. 
That was Mira talking to Steve Jones and Catherine Ryan about the processes and the experience of genetic profiling. Now, very soon we will be going back to this week's Kitchen Science to find out if Dave's grasp of the theory of the physics behind music is enough for him to build a harmonic instrument rather than something that makes a horrendous discord. But first, we're joined by Vicky West, who's one of the team behind Geek Pop. Now, Geek Pop is an online music festival dedicated to music about or inspired by science. To give you an idea of the sort of music we're talking about, here's a sample of the song Nanobot by a Latin punk circle. I am a nanobot. I know that may not seem a lot to you in your microscopic world. I, the fancy of sci-fi dreams, travel through your bloodstreams, exploring the secrets, the self that you don't know. Hi, Vicky. Thanks ever so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. <laughs> Geek Pop uh, is a fantastic idea. How did you come up with this? Well, it was a bit of a pet project, really. Um, me and a couple of uh, fellow geeks were doing a postgrad course in uh, science communication, which was very, very serious. And all about kind of expelling the myths of uh, scientists being these lab coat wearing bespectacled people. And we just thought, you know what, it's not all about this. Sometimes there are geeks that are quite happy to be geeks and have a bit of fun with it as well. And uh, so we, we kind of threw it open on our Facebook group just to come up with some science-related pop music. And we had the usual suspects, the atomic kittens, you know, uh, fairly tenuous links. And it just kind of snowballed from there, really. We started getting uh, contacts from lots of bands who were either working in science or were writing about uh, scientific uh, matters. And, and they were kind of asking to get involved and whether there'd be a platform to share their music. So that's, that's how the Geek Pop online festival came about, really. Now, as you said, it's an online music festival. When I think of music festivals, I think of very large, muddy fields, knackered tents, big stages, loud bands. How does this work online? Well, it's all of those wonderful things without any of the inconvenience. It's, <laughs> it's basically, if you imagine your favourite festival uh, in the comfort of your own home or car or wherever you listen to your MP3 player. Uh, so we've got four different tents. We have the Tetrahedron. Other shapes are available. Uh, the reproductive stage, uh, the Tesla tent and the experimental stage as well. So much like any of the big commercial festivals, uh, there are lots of different styles of music at each tent. But you obviously don't have to pay. It's completely free of charge. We just ask people to get online, geekpop.co.uk and download it to your MP3 player. And then you can have this virtual festival experience whenever and wherever you like. So you're not tied down to particular times of live events that you're streaming across the internet. You can actually download these and listen and you know, stop and start wherever you need be, go back and hear a song again. This is Absolutely. actually yeah. a lot better than going to a real festival where you'll get caked in mud and all the really, <laughs> really good bits you'll have to rely on your somewhat shoddy memory for. Indeed, indeed. And memories aren't always the most reliable at festivals, are they? I don't know what your experience is like then. But um, yeah, it's, it's pretty much that. Although it feels like a live experience, you can revisit it anytime you like. If there's a particular band that you're into, uh, we also have some exclusive green room um, areas as well. So if you want to find out more about the band or the science behind the song, uh, then we've got lots of interviews with those bands and there's some um, online content as well. But you can literally pick it up and put it down as you wish. Uh, but it's an annual event. Last 
last year's kind of turned into a much bigger event than we ever anticipated. Uh, so we, we've got big hopes for this year's event as well, which kicks off on the 6th of March, uh, which happens to be now National Science and Engineering Week as well. Purely coincidental. Um, and it will be up there for some time. So you, you can pitch in, like I say, at any time you like. Oh, that's good to hear. Now, the last clip of the song we heard was clearly and very obviously a song <laughs> written about a scientific topic. Yeah. Do you also get... In fact, I've been sent a sample by a band called The Standards, which seems to be rather less directly scientific, but more inspired by something. Here, let's, let's have a play of that. There's 11 dimensions the heart of you There's 11 dimensions And I've got the proof No more clever pretensions I hasten to mention There's 11 inside of me too There's 11 dimensions And we make 22 So that is a tiny bit tenuous Yes. <laughs> Have you had to turn anyone away? Have somebody come up and said, well, I've got this song, it's all about science, I'd like you to publicise it for me on the net. And you've actually had to say, well, well, I'm sorry, but that's just misleading science. Absolutely, yeah. We do have elements of quality control. It's not a free-for-all. Everyone's had to audition in a virtual festival environment. Um, and the bands that have made it through, I hope that anyone that downloads it will agree that they're all really, really good quality bands. Very diverse. And like you say, lots of them are directly science-related and lots of them quite tenuous. Um, but yeah, they've all, they've all earned their place at the festival. We've got lots and lots of people who will be, uh, well, frankly gutted, I would imagine, that they didn't make it through this year. But there's always next year. <laughs> so whereabouts do we have? to go online to actually listen you can head to geekpop.co.uk as of march the 6th the brand new festival will be up there um, at the moment you've still got an opportunity to listen to last year's festival uh, you can also join us we've got a facebook group which is very very popular just um, look for geek pop all one word uh, we also have um, twitter as well if you're into twittering you can join along and uh, obviously the week before the festival things are getting very very hyper and lots of twitter activity going on there um, and we've also being a festival we do have a lost and found uh, facility <laughs> as well, albeit a virtual one. And we're kind of appealing for people at the moment uh, to get involved and anticipate things that they might lose or indeed find at a festival. So if you want to take part ahead of the release date, then, uh, then do get in touch either via Facebook or by the website. Can I say that again? Geekpop.co.uk <laughs> I think that's fair enough, yes. Well, <laughs> thank you ever so much for joining us, Vicky. I hope the festival goes well and I, I shall certainly check it out online. That, thank you very much. That was Vicky West, one of the organisers of Geekpop, and I'll give her one last plug. If you want to join them, just visit geekpop.co.uk Laying the facts bare. I say. The Naked Scientists. You're listening to The Naked Scientist, and now it's time to welcome the lovely Diana O'Carroll back into the studio with our question of the week. Hello, Diana. Hello, lovely Helen. Well, this week I've been scouring the internet to find the answer to this question. Hello, my name is Christiane. I would like to know how much energy is used when you do a Google search. So, to find the answer to this, I did a Google search, and I found this gentleman. Hi, so I'm Eric Tietzel. I'm a program manager for the RA Lesson C effort here at Google. Uh, RA Lesson C is an initiative that we started to advance technology and renewable energy to make it cost competitive with fossil fuel power generation. 
so we've done the calculations internally, and I think anybody that's tried to do carbon accounting understands there's a lot of you know complications and nuance. But the basic premise is, is that one Google search uses about 0.3 watt hours worth of electricity, and that's plus or minus some, and that then translates based on emissions load into somewhere around 0.2 grams of CO2 per search that we answer. To actually do the things that we do, all of our online services require machines, and those machines are basically all housed in facilities we call data centers. And those machines are typically servers and networking equipment. So the way in which we do the energy calculation per query, we look at not just the exact machines that touch the query as it comes into our data center, but we also look at allocating networking routing costs as well as what we would call just overhead. So it, it takes energy to build the index to be able to effectively answer the queries as they come in. So we also allocate those costs across all of our, our search presence. And then that's how we come up with the number of 0.2 grams per search or 0.3 watt hours worth of electricity. And here at The Naked Scientist, we've calculated that one kilojoule is equivalent in energy to about 0.25 grams of sugar, an eighth of a tic-tac, 0.028 millilitres of petrol, and that's about enough to drive a Toyota Prius about 60 centimetres. It's about 0.04 grams of coal. And with that energy, you could run a desktop PC and monitor for about three seconds. You could run a kettle for about 0.5 of a second, and you could run a 100-watt light bulb for about 10 seconds. And that's if you can find one in the shops. And on our forum, TechMind pointed out that more energy must be consumed by all the people all around the world who now stay up all night with their computers, lights and heating on, Googling and surfing, when a few years ago we'd probably all be tucked up in bed using very little energy. So it's perhaps worth remembering that multi-core desktops can be pretty power hungry. Well, onto something else that involves energy now and the matter of burns. Hi, I'm Adrian, 28, from Romania, and I do have a question. What happens when you get burned at a molecular level when you touch something hot? Why can't our skin deal with hot things when other materials can? If you know the answer, then, or if you have any other questions, then drop us a line via email. That's chris at thenakedscientist.com. We can jot it down on our forum and you can have your, read out, your answer read out for all to hear. You can find that hotbed of discussion here and that's thenakedscientist.com forward slash forum. I should apologise there. I was laughing a little bit, and that obviously was addictive. Diana started giggling herself, so I caused her to stumble there through the medium of addictive laughter. So thanks ever so much, Diana. Nasty Ben. <laughs> From protons to photons and gluons to muons, the naked scientists. Science that's fundamentally more fun. You're listening to The Naked Scientists, and now it's time to tune up with Dave and see if his theory translates into beautiful music. Welcome back to this week's musical kitchen science, where I have got my guitar out for the first time in ages. But Dave is trying to better me by building his own musical instrument. Take us through again how you've actually built this. Well, I've got two strings. Obviously, it's a stringed instrument. I've tied them to one end of the table, and I've added a weight onto the other end. I'm just using a plastic bottle. And then I've just lifted them off the table with two blocks of wood, one at each end for each string. One of them I've attached to the end of the table, and the other one can slide along the table so I can change the string's length. So how does it actually sound? We'll try one here, if we listen to it. It's never going to be the most impressive instrument in the world. People have spent thousands of years optimising them, and I've spent an afternoon. But as you can hear, that one's a very low pitch. Yes, it's very low and quite sort of flappy. 
Yes. At the moment, we've got very, very little weight on the end, so it's got very, very little tension. And as we were talking about earlier, if you change the tension, we should be able to change the pitch. So we'll try adding a bit of water into that bottle. OK, so we'll pour some water in now. And this is a bit like me turning the tuning pegs on my guitar. It adds more tension to the string, and so it should make the note that the string makes go a bit higher. Let's see how it sounds. That's an awful lot better. It's much more musical. That's a good sign. We're obviously getting something like a real instrument. Why is it that adding some tension has actually made the note higher? Well, sound is vibrations in the air, so all forms of musical instruments are all about vibrations. The vibration in a stringed instrument is obviously the string vibrating backwards and forwards. If I pluck it, you can actually see it moving. Basically what happens is when you move the string in one direction, if you push it gently, you can feel it pushing you back because of the tension in the string. So if you push it in one direction, it's going to move back to try and straighten itself out. By the time it gets back to the middle, it's going quite fast, it's got quite a lot of momentum, overshoots, goes the other way, and so it vibrates backwards and forwards and makes a sound. So plucking the string makes it vibrate back and forth, and that makes the air vibrate, and that vibrating air gets to our ears as sound. Yes, and the more tension you put into the string, as I push down, the bigger the force is returning it, so the quicker it's going to get there, so the quicker it's going to vibrate, and the higher the pitch. So now that we've changed the tension, what else can we do to change the note? How do we tune this? Well, one other thing we could do is change the string. Heavier strings will vibrate more slowly because there's more mass to move backwards and forwards. And this is why bass guitar strings or double bass strings are much thicker, heavier strings than, say, on a normal guitar. Yeah, that's right. But um, we've already got our string set up. We don't really want to have to replace it with heavier string. What else can we do? We can change the length. So I start plucking this and move the block. You should hear a difference. But how is a shorter string a higher frequency? Well, if you have a shorter string, it feels stiffer. And because it's stiffer, it's going to vibrate faster and you get a higher pitch. OK, so strings under more tension, or strings that are shorter will vibrate at a higher frequency and give us a higher pitch. But earlier on, you set yourself the challenge of actually tuning this. So you have two strings, and you want a nice harmony from it, but you're not allowed to do what I would do with my guitar and just tweak the tuning until it sounds right. How are you going to make this sound good? Well, when a string vibrates, it doesn't just vibrate in the obvious way, forming a C-shape in one direction and straightening out, then a C-shape in the other direction. It can actually vibrate in all sorts of other ways. It could form an S-shape, or you could have a thing with three curves in it, or four curves, or five curves. When you pluck a string, you create lots of these different modes of vibration all at the same time. And the higher modes, the ones with more curves in them, are a higher pitch. Because if I try and bend this string into an S-shape, it's the equivalent of trying to bend it into two smaller C-shapes. Different instruments have different selections of these harmonic frequencies and give a different timbre of sound, so they sound different. So how does that help you with making your two strings sound good together? Well, notes that sound good together tend to have some of their harmonies which are exactly the same pitch, and so your ear, for some reason, decides these are a good sound and you like them. So the higher frequency harmonics of two different notes, if they're quite similar then the notes should sound good together, but I still don't see how this means that you can make a nice harmony from your two strings. Well, if I get the tension of the two strings identical, all I've got to do is pick two lengths where, say, the second harmonic of one is going to be exactly the same pitch as the third harmonic of the other. So if I make one 30 centimetres long and I make the other one 20 centimetres long, they should, in theory, sound good together. So we've measured the weight in our bottle, so we know that both strings will be under exactly the same tension... And now we need to measure the strings themselves. So how long is your first string? 
The first string is 60 centimetres long exactly. Very nice, I like it. And how long will you make your second string? Well, the easiest harmonic to do would be just two-thirds of that length, so I'm going to go for 40 centimetres long. Okay. well, let's measure this out at 40 centimetres. And if the theory is correct, then as long as the second string is two-thirds the length of the first, then we should find that it's quite a nice harmony. And this is the moment of truth, of course. Will this be harmony or horrible discord? Dave, here we go. I am impressed. So knowing the maths and the way that different frequencies work together has enabled you to build a two-stringed, one-chord instrument. Well, that's all we have for this week's Musical Kitchen Science. There are actually plenty more experiments to do with sound on our website at thenakedscientist.com slash kitchen science, including things like why it is that blowing across the top of a bottle makes music, or even how you can get very pretty harmonies out of a normal table knife. Dave will be live in the studio with another experiment for you to try out next week. I must say, I'm really impressed. I'm But I'm not quite sure that I'd rush out and buy Dave's latest single, but he definitely managed to build an instrument that produced harmony. Well done. Dave will put more of these um, frequencies and harmonics and how they work together on the website at thenakedscientist.com forward slash kitchen science. We've had an email here from Lisa Brink in South Africa, and she says thanks for a great programme, which is wonderful, and she particularly likes Diana O'Carroll's Naked Archaeology, which is fantastic. That's well, great, thank you. I'm very pleased to hear it, and Diana will, of course, be very proud. In fact, we're going to be out in South Africa in just a few weeks for the South African Science Festival, so hopefully we'll get to meet a few people out there, and I'm very pleased to hear that Naked Archaeology is doing so well. It's doing very well in the iTunes charts as well, so if you want to find that, go to thenakedscientist.com slash archaeology. Now that's unfortunately all we have time for this week, so many thanks to John Long, Nikki Phillips, Robin Ince, Sophie Scott, Catherine Ryan, Steve Jones and Vicky West, all of who have joined us on the show. Thanks also to Diana O'Carroll, Mira Senthalingam, Tom Simkins and Dave Ansell. And finally, thanks to you at home for listening. Next week we're taking on your science questions. There's no question too big or too small, so if you've got any questions, get them into chris at thenakedscientist.com and if you want to hear the show again or catch up with old shows, then you can download them at thenakedscientist.com slash podcasts we hope you have a very good week join us online and we shall see you again next time goodbye the naked scientist podcast comes to you from cambridge university and is supported by the wellcome trust the epsrc and uk fast for more information look us up online at nakedscientist.com 